Welcome to The Lead, the New Lions Magazine podcast. I'm Faiz Al-Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. I'm joined today by Carl Sharrow, an architect and satirist. If you're on Twitter, you probably know him better as Carl Remarks. His satirical tweets about Middle Eastern politics regularly go viral and have even earned him a book deal with Sahi Books. And then God created the Middle East and said, let there be breaking news. In June, as the scandals piled up, then Prime Minister Boris Johnson refused to resign, even as his former allies turned on him. A constitutional crisis loomed as MPs began to realize that they would have to force him out of office. For many, recalling the many long and bloody revolts against British colonialism of the 20th century, the irony was too delicious to ignore. And for Carl, it was definitely too delicious to ignore. He tweeted, It's great that the British are finally discovering how difficult it is to get rid of British rule. Carl Sharrow, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Faisal. Great great to be with you and uh, great to be part of this great podcast. Thank you. Um, I had to start with that one because that one, I mean, that really went very far and wide. Um, it's kind of illustrative of the of the jokes that work so well for you on Twitter. Yeah, I hope I'm not repeating myself too much. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't want to be complacent in this uh, online comedy business. Uh, but you know where all of that comes from is I thought uh, I have to live with this uh, situation. Obviously, I live in London and uh, you know, I have to suffer from the economic crisis, the political dysfunction. So the least I could do to get back is, is you know, make <laughs> get some comedy material out of it. So the collapse of the country has been very rewarding for me personally, as a in my whatever comedic capacity I have. Mm, I mean, there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn between. Th- this is part of the, the the jokes that you make that you draw these parallels between the Middle East as it is, or the Middle East as it is perceived, and the West. Yeah, correct. There's an underlying theme. I mean, I'm not sort of ideologically committed to it. It's not like my personal uh, anti-imperialist uh, uh, campaign. You know, it's it's just a way of poking uh, fun, I guess, at Western narratives, certain Western narratives and attitudes that some of which are embodied in this kind of Orientalist attitude. Others are embodied in this overbearing kind of uh, uh, paternalistic attitude to the Middle East as if if it needs uh, Western kind of nurturing in order to become fully democratic and so on and so forth. So it's just a way as kind of kicking back at that. And I think uh, particularly since 2016 and all the kind of dynamics around uh, Brexit in Britain, uh, Trump, and and not just to limit it to those, there's a kind of a general sense of dysfunction you see creeping you know, in the West. I think it was a way to kind of uh, uh, start to utilize that dynamic to say, A, you know the way you historically looked at us is is uh, is kind of wrong. Uh, let's illustrate, uh, uh, you know, through kind of a humorous take on that. Uh, but, but, but B is also saying, you know, you're you're not in a great position yourself, so maybe take a break and stop lecturing us. Yeah, I mean, you do sometimes think, 
you know, when you look at what is happening, you could, if this was happening to another country, you know, you have street protests, you have the passing of one hereditary monarch, the passing of the crown to another hereditary monarch, the involvement in a war, um, the economic crisis. If this were happening in the Middle East, people would say, oh my God, what's going on over there? I mean, it's seriously, at this point, I think Britain in particular, it's not about, I used to think is we should start sending, you know, Arab foreign or Middle Eastern foreign correspondents to come here and cover uh, Britain the way, uh, let's say, the BBC without particularly wishing to signal them out, Western, Western kind of media outlets cover the Middle East. And now I think the time for that has passed. Actually, it's time to send in the anthropologists. I think what's been happening over the past few years, I mean, forget about the past few years, right? Right. The mm. past few days, what's been happening in Britain, you definitely need some serious anthropology done on explaining what's happening. Right. It's like just things spiral completely out of control. So it said, I respect that there's a death of a, 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 um, um, a very beloved monarch. But the reaction of people, right, it became a mark of respect to just go out and cancel anything that's happening out there. That is a mark of respect. Let's cancel children's football. Let's cancel people's holidays. All sorts of things. And then things spiral out of control. And and you think there has to be some serious anthropological investigation done to understand these people. For the audience, I should just point out, we're speaking in the mourning period between the passing of the Queen um, and the lying in state of the Queen. So that's the period you're talking about with all this pomp and ceremony and the 24-hour coverage of the news. And and as you say, we've just passed the first weekend since the, the death of the Queen. Lots of things were cancelled. Um, we at the magazine cancelled an event in London. Um, and lots of things have been cancelled for this coming weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I understand, you know, it's a historic occasion. It deserves to be marked with the... Uh, requisite level of respect but what i'm trying to say is and i and i was going to point out to this the other day is when they were doing the gun salutes right i thought of, i didn't manage to kind of phrase it in any funny way but it's kind of reminded me when when someone dies or when there's a wedding in the middle east and people start shooting guns in the air and i was like well, hang on a minute this is the same thing except these guys are wearing a uniform and pointing generally in the same direction but did, so, you, <laughs> did you say that though no, I didn't. I, I, I just say I saved it for you, Faisal. For this <laughs> this podcast. <is> a, <laughs> but, but actually, I mean, it's, well, thank you for that. The audience will appreciate it. But <laughs> the reason it's it's interesting is, it, you know, we are we're now four five days after the passing of the Queen, and we are still, I think, in a period where I don't think satire or comedy would be well received. I don't think the kind of jokes you're talking about would be well received by the British public, which, you know, of course, we have um, a lot of Americans on our team. And that's something the Americans have really struggled with, the idea that things need to be cancelled, the idea that there needs to be this excessive deference after so many days. Yeah, but I mean, Americans are the last people to speak. And I'm speaking in very broad, sweeping generalization now, which is what I do all the time. (laughs) I I mean, (laughs) they don't understand monarchy, but they go way more hysterical over, you know, other kind of public figures. So I don't think they're necessarily the... Uh, uh, the ones uh, to speak, but I think was that you? Uh, sorry, Carl. Was that you who made the joke that the the, and the Americans are into uh, monarchy because they want to love the monarchy without the responsibility of living with it? Was that you? 
Yeah, yeah, I tweeted that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I tweeted that yesterday, and it's quite an interesting one. It's an interesting phenomenon because they can't stop talking about it. And essentially, it's the whole reason why they sought independence is they wanted to have an opinion about it and the and royals in particular without, you know, suffering the 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 consequences. Um, so it's 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 a very interesting. I know a lot of people would be very like, reluctant to satirize this moment, but. Uh, I'm diving right in, and ad- admittedly, it's not very successful. You know, emotions are raw, but it goes back to a point that when I started uh, sort of tweeting, blogging, blogging comedically about the Middle East, and it was early days of uh, what was called then the, the Arab Spring or the Arab uprisings, and the Western audience was sort of kind of taking that on board and, you know, aha, it's funny and it's a way to explain the Middle East with humor. And they were very receptive. And then when things started to kind of go pear-shaped in the West and let's say, I don't know, for a large part of my audience, like the, the election of Trump is equal to a, a natural disaster, right? And I start laughing about it and joking about it in the same way. They turn around and say, well, actually, you can't, you know, you can't joke about this. It's too serious. It's about us yeah right? that's the subtext of yeah. course but yeah. you know that's what's implied right it was okay yeah. for you to like uh kind of make jokes when all of that stuff was happening in the middle east and people were dying and whatever and i'd like to think i dealt with it you know with a sensitivity and a sense of responsibility but at the end of the day as a satirist i think you have to kind of like uh find any opportunity to uh, uh kind of say what you want to say Right. And I think what what I found interesting in the past few years is when it comes to the actual West, when things are happening here, I mean, somebody actually was offended the other day because I was joking about climate change and they were like, no, you can't you can't joke about that. I'm like, no, you can actually joke about anything. You know, it depends how you do it and how you satirize it. And secondly, the more important point goes back to this kind of what you mentioned in your introduction and kind of dealing with the topics that I that I deal with is um, let's, you know, don't be hypocritical. If you were happy to to laugh about events happening everywhere, don't be oversensitive now when things are happening uh, to you. Mm. And, and I think those kind of things, these forms of dissent and things like that are very important even within Western societies because there's a a creeping sense of conformity that's quite stifling and needs people to kick back against it. And now, effectively, what happens is, particularly from a left-wing perspective, if it's sort of, you know, something like um, the the Queen's passing or something like that, uh, you'd find a lot more kind of left-wing people willing to kind of stand up and, you know, say, this has kind of gone on too much, uh, the reaction, you know, they're willing to be critical, right? But at the same time, there's a lot of other trends that kind of escalate and and become stifling and there's tendency towards conformity that, you know, the left at that point would be kind of willing to act as those kind of guardians of what's acceptable speech, what's acceptable to laugh about, And I come from a much more kind of anarchic point of view where I want to be able to laugh at everything and poke fun at everything and not be restrained by these self-appointed guardian of what is acceptable or polite uh, speech. So Mm -hmm. I'll use any opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, say that and always kind of try to play on the parallels as between the Middle East and the West as as a humorous device to say these things. 
I mean, I think that there are sort of two points there, and we've kind of we've we've dived into it a bit. I was hoping to to start off gently, but actually we've dived <laughs> did, straight did into you it. Wanna, did you want to ease into it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought that was the way in. But you, you started with Trump. You just dove right in there. But I think there's two things going on, isn't there? I mean, there's one, as you say, the the West, again, we're exaggerating to some degree, because I mean, to some degree, both of us are the West now. But anyway, Correct. That, that sometimes the jokes that are about the Middle East at moments of immense crisis, I mean, wars and invasions and occupations, really serious, serious things, people being killed, people being maimed, those kind of jokes pass. But then when really serious things happen in the West, Brexit, Trump, um, you know, the passing of the Queen, these sorts of things, people c- cry deference, respect, you have to understand what's going on, these are political things, don't make jokes about them. So that's one aspect of it. Yes, absolutely. That's what, what, what kind of I was trying to allude to. And uh, it, it's, it's to me, it's kind of a, a glaring kind of contradiction in attitudes. I mean, you look at my presence on Twitter, which is really my kind of main presence anywhere, not just online. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, the same audience, right? We're willing to kind of, you know, accept these jokes at times of crisis, whatever. And then you see this sensitivity uh, when it comes to things happening internally in 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 the West, and it's kind of you know now you can't talk about it, and mm. and to me it's not just kind of you know I don't want to kind of bang on about this as if I'm some sort of preacher trying to kind of make Western people lighten up. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm I'm just kind of trying to use it from a position of. Uh, um, trying to make a broader point about free speech, about freedom of satire, about, you know, freedom of opinion, and to say there are various forms of orthodoxies that are becoming enshrined in these societies here in Western countries. Some of them have been formalized and some of them have been not. But uh, it's my way of kind of kicking back at that using these kind of devices where they'll, you know, the same people that be happy to say, you know, they'll protest against uh, someone holding up a sign against the king and being arrested. They'll say this is an attack on free speech. And then the next day, uh, you know, some 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 other kind of free speech violation happens and they're like, oh, you know what? But free speech is not sacred. And, Mm. uh, you know, people have a right to be offended and speech has to have consequences. So these are to me are really hypocritical attitudes. These matters are very serious, very important, uh, you know. Uh, that we need to have a consistency of approach, a consistency of, of principle towards them. And kind of what I like is a lot of your writers on, on Newsline magazine kind of really understand that and take it on board. And I appreciate what was what said in the aftermath on attack on uh, Salman Rushdie, for example, right? Mm. And it's not necessarily attitudes that you see uh, everywhere or the same kind of eagerness uh, that a lot of Middle Eastern people, of writers of Middle Eastern background, are kind of eager for this freedom of speech because they have been deprived of it for so long. Whereas you have people who, in theory, should should you know be more comfortable with it, kind of in the West, kicking back against it now. So it all comes from that 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 kind of position for me personally. Well, that was the the Rushdie attack was one of the few times actually I've seen you. Um, our producer Josh called it break character. I mean, you were more like your tweets were more serious in that uh, in the aftermath. I wondered why that was. Perhaps you felt it affected you in some way. 
Well, I mean, it's 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 a little bit of a long story, but yes, I did break character because sometimes, you know, in the face of um, cowardice, intellectual cowardice, uh, you have to be a little bit more blunt and, and serious, I guess. Uh, because when you see people going around trying to justify, without necessarily always putting it in so many words, uh, an attack on a, an elderly person, uh, you know, defenseless elderly person for things he wrote. And you see the cowardly kind of attempt to say, oh, yeah, but he offended a lot of people and so on and so forth. Uh, that becomes a form of justification. It's I draw the line at that. And, and this is a kind of attitudes by people when I was writing scathing and doing kind of videos and stuff, scathing satire of ISIS at the time, right? And I was mm. being sent uh, lots of kind of uh, negative messages and things like that. There were a lot of people saying, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're standing up to them. You're right. I'm like, I'm not that heroic, but this is something big that's happening. And we need to kind of, uh, you know, uh, deflate it a little bit as a, as a, uh, as a phenomenon. And, uh, and then they turn around and it comes to an issue like uh, Salman Rushdie. And, you know, um, it's, it's, you can't conceivably not stand by his right not to be violently attacked. I mean, I don't know how I can put it any more bluntly. Yeah. And this is what, in a sense, you know, you see the kind of the, the weasel words and, and the kind of the lack of having any courage around that is what kind of, yes, it did make me break uh, character. It's actually making me break character again now. I should, I should think of something <laughs> yeah, I mean, I to think, say. Well, that, <laughs> I mean, because we haven't got to the part where I read yeah. out some of your tweets. I think a lot of people who've joined this podcast, you know, perhaps they they don't know you all that well, would be like, I didn't, I thought this was going to be about jokes. Where's the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the guy's preaching about free speech for the last 18 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. But actually there's a serious point there because the double standards that you, you talked about, when you talk about ISIS, it isn't merely double standards of the West. It is the case, for example, that Westerners don't like it when their own sacred cows are attacked. But it's also the case that the Middle Easterners, again, we're talking very broadly, you know, yeah. will be very comfortable with you making jokes that, you know, poke at imperialism and colonialism and so on and so on. But then when it touches on things that they find sacred or that they get upset about or things that are important to their societies, they turn around and say exactly what the Westerners say. This stuff is serious. This isn't for jokes. You can't explain it in one line. These sorts of things. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's absolutely true. And I, uh, you know, tend to, if you look, I'm, I might not do it all the time simultaneously, but if you look at sort of my 10, 12, whatever it is on uh, 12 years on, on Twitter doing this, I'd like to think I've actually offended everybody along the way. Uh, and actually, someone actually wrote an article about that and listed everyone that I have criticized, you know, from dictators uh, to Hezbollah to, you know, whatever entity you can, to obviously like Western imperialist uh, pigs and uh, no, <laughs> That was, that, 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 was um, uh, that was the joke, Faisal, I should tell you before I joke. And, yeah, uh, please explain <laughs> it to me. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> You know, but, but Carl, I mean, it's actually one of the, the nicest compliments I've had. That, you, that joke, the one that we talked about earlier, the one where we said, oh, the British are getting rid of the British. We have a, a, a colleague who sent it to me and said, she said, oh, this is this is really funny. Are you ghostwriting tweets now? Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Which for me, honestly, one of the nicest things anybody could say to me. No, but I think, good. I mean, I'll, I'll come back to this. Um, mm. 
because I, I just want to intercede with this joke because I think it's really intriguing that you do have such a style that is recognizable. I mean, even earlier when I said, was that the joke that you made? It was a very Carl Sharrow joke. Even if it wasn't you, in that case it was, but even if it wasn't you, it's very much of the style. Like there's a certain kind of humor that people associate with you, I think. You've become like you become like Churchill or something. You know, people associate all these random quotes that have happened throughout history and they say, oh, Churchill said it all. Yeah, I, I don't have as many colonies as he does. I, I mean, very few colonies, if any at all. But aside from that, I, I, I'm just exactly like Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about the, the second part. Because um, yes. you talked about 12 years that you've been on Twitter. And yes. we were talking about how, you know, there, there's a sort of double standard. But also that segues into a second aspect, which is the the change in the climate of what is satirical, what is funny, um, what comedy is acceptable. That, I think, is a slightly different thing than the double standards. I think that sometimes people refer to it as being about, you know, a new woke era. I wonder how you interpret it. It's something to do with a difference in the way a gener a new generation what they think is acceptable yeah i mean that is a great point uh personally i think putting it on the new generation is unfair you know i i know we all uh i don't know exactly how old you are i'm 50 years old now but i i know people in my generation of 40 year olds like to blame everything on the younger generation and say you know we were more sophisticated we were funnier we were more open to humor and things like that mm. uh, but to me it's not i see uh, uh these kind of cultural trends that are about uh, taking offense and kind of prescribing what's acceptable uh, and kind of, you know, people, towards people's sensitivities and things like that. These actually all emanate from boomers. Don't like kind of boom, you know, it's, it's, this has been building up since the 60s. So I, mm. I, I don't think not to kind of make a thesis about this whole thing. I think these tendencies are generally over the past few years have becoming and almost exponentially becoming more and more magnified to the mm. extent I'm genuinely since I and I actually joined Twitter on 2009, I think so it's a little bit more. But let's say when I started uh, talking about these topics, 2011, so that's about 11 years, even within those 11 years, I see. Uh, a huge decline in people's appetite to accept. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, uh, racist or chauvinist or statements like that. I'm saying any form of uh, uh, statement or humor that somehow might be perceived in a very elaborate way as offensive, right? And the way that I think about it is almost like uh, someone is painting a house, let's say, right? And they do several coats. They go over several coats. It's almost like every year passes and there's a new layer that's been mm. added that makes people even more sensitive. I mean, people started to get offended over the most banal things stay away from politics and religion and things like that just to locate this in a context you look mm. i'm a big football fan i'm a big supporter of liverpool football club right whenever i see a football tweet you just click on it and just the amount of people for the most absurd statement that are so offended that they're willing you know how dare you offend me how you dare you insult my team and i was like you know this is we used to call this trash talk in in when we played football or basketball that's essential part of sport if even sports fans are becoming so thin skinned 
right? It's mm. reflective of a broader cultural phenomenon where um, these prescriptions about, you know, respect and, and conformity and lack of offense that I perceive as very stifling are, are increasing exponentially and, and they don't bode well for anyone. This I mean, is I, the real risk. Yeah, I mean, you said earlier that um, you locate this change among the boomers. Um, and I actually, I don't, I didn't mean that it was from a young generation in a negative way. I actually think it's a positive thing. I do believe it, it, it is part of a new generation. But the reason I think it's a positive thing is that I think there's a new generation that is much more aware of power dynamics and much more willing to interrogate the ideas of it. So for example, when you talk about, as you say, leave politics and religion aside, when you talk about jokes people might make among you know football fans and so on i mean any of us who have played any level of sport know that this kind of trash talk is there but the trash talk sometimes does have a power dynamic to it for example sometimes it is um, an ableist joke you know you're making fun of somebody um for something they can't help that i think is a generation pointing out that those jokes as they would say is not okay and i think perhaps they're actually telling the, the sort of the wider society something yeah, I mean, that's all fair enough. I think I, I made it very clearly that whenever you're kind of stepping some sort of bounds, that you, you know, uh, for example, you're being racist or whatever, you'd expect to be called on it, right? That's 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 the whole part of the premise is if you want to live in this healthy society where people are free to express their opinion, they have to also free, you know, I don't like this crybaby type of people where you think free speech means, you know, you have to can go around and nobody should criticize you. That's obviously not 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 what it means. But my point is this broader sense where the more kind of there's a complexity of accumulation of prescribed secular, let's call them secular taboos, yeah? Okay. The more you kind of layer these things on top of each other, uh, you end up kind of restricting a society. And, I, and I'll give you an example why I personally think it's very important for me, uh, personally, from my background and, and my experience. And where look, I'm, you know, I'm originally half Lebanese, half Iraqi. I grew up between these two societies that are very skilled at dealing with tragedy and violence and war with humor and very dark humor and bleak humor and, you know, the kind of this subversive sense of transgression verbal transgression is a way to kind of deal with the situations around you. So it's very important to me on a cultural uh, sense and, mm. you know, in a personal sense, in a way that I interact with my family and, and, and my friends. The problem then in having these limits of these transgressions being prescribed either formally, by which I mean speech codes that universities and other institutions are introducing, or what I call uh, uh, grassroots policing, that is, you know, the people that take it upon themselves to not only say to you, it's not right to say this, but to get you fired from your job and, and, and you know, just kind of punish you for something that you said, mm -hmm. is the problem that when you do that, Right, you lose this ability, this dynamism of society, the ability to even make mistakes because you're being faced now by two sorts of uh, pressures from above and below that are kind of regulating and prescribing. And these are things you go talk to, you know, anyone from a from a Middle Eastern or Arab background. These are things you struggle against all your life. You struggle against um, societal kind of. Uh, 
uh, norms and restriction, family and norms and restriction, authoritarian norms and restriction. And, uh, you know, you want to be consistent with yourself. You want to say that these transgress transgressions uh, uh, should be dealt with through a kind of a freer form of critique rather than through a form of policing. And the distinction is very, uh, you know, blurry. It's not, it's not clear cut. But this is, again, what kind of alarms me about a lot of... Um, people from the Middle East that were at the time of the Arab uprisings and everything saying freedom and all of that. And then within the West, they become all of a sudden kind of very uh, big fans of uh, these forms, what I call inescapably, I call it censorship. There's no other, there's no other words of, uh, for it. And to me, it, that is not a healthy attitude to kind of have healthy societies that are able to discuss issues in serious manners. And the reason why I think it's also very important is you've noticed in COVID, it was magnified, right? Whatever people can't find an outlet for whatever little dissent they have with uh, what's happening around them, we've created an environment where it's very easy for them to go underground, some sort of digital underground that very soon can find a, a manifestation for itself in real life and start kind of a breeding ground for conspiracies and things like that. So the effect of this kind of uh, policing has very serious consequences. I'm not saying it's the cause of that. It's not having that kind of environment is what causes, you know, conspiracy theories. No, it's kind of having that kind of environment will aid people to kind of seek like-minded people in a more underground kind of form and start this fragmentation of society where every section of society has its own understanding of reality. Um, so that's really where I come to it from. I, I understand the need to be kind of uh, critical and aware of power dynamics, and I tweet about them and I write about them. But at the same time, you have to be able to have the freedom to transgress boundaries and uh, without being policed. And, and that's very crucial to creativity. So you don't accept that there is a certain positionality that you have as, as being somebody who, you know, who lives in the West, a uh, certain socioeconomic background, certain education, of course, um, that you're able to make jokes about things that are, for example, very real to people, not merely sacred, but things that are part of their daily life. This was the, the question I asked Isam Raikhat, you probably know, the satirical course, guy who yeah. created the satirical magazine Al-Hudud, which is focused on the Middle East, that sometimes when you are making these jokes, don't you feel that you are attacking things that people hold dear? Like you're not just attacking some abstract concept, you're attacking something that is a, a part of their daily life. Yeah, that is correct. But I always say it's how it's done and to what purpose it's done. And I think uh, different people will do it in different ways. Some people more gratuitously than others, but... Uh, you know, um, and 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 I can't, I can't pretend that I'm always doing kind of Lewin from a lofty uh, position, yeah. but ultimately, uh, I think when you want to live in a in a in a society where uh, you you know you go back to what we all want in the region to have a sense of freedom and control over our lives, control our our economic. Uh, affairs and the say that we have in government and things like that, that requires a measure of freedom. And part of that is fighting against the weight of traditions, the weight of established institutions, 
um, the ways of, uh, uh, you know, very uh, normalized, inherited ways of doing things that you you, you want to be able to kick back against that. Right. Mm. And you can't then go be, be very prescriptive and say that's because some people might say that this is very dear to me, then it acquires an automatic immunity from criticism. Right. Because very, I, yeah, be, 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 because that, that 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 then, you know, can apply to anything. And that is my point. It's people can't, for example, people who single out, you know, just let's say Muslims because Muslims get offended. They try to say that Muslims get offended when someone criticizes their religion and they kind of try to single out as if, you know, that's that's uh, um, an, an, an exception when mm. everybody's actually got to the point where they were offended about something, you know, a vegan will get offended if you, uh, you know, criticize as much as a Muslim will get offended if if their religion got you know got attacked yeah. or criticized or, what, or any, anybody will get offended in equal measures these days, uh, um, and um, or or feel offended, right? What they do about it is a different thing. So 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 my point is then if for you to accept that just the only measure that will kind of uh, give immediate protection for uh, some of these institutions or feelings or whatever happens how passionately people feel about them, then we will have a problem. Because that means anything that people feel passionately about, and that's precisely what a lot of uh, extreme far-right parties do now all across the globe, you know, from from India to to Western Europe to Brazil, where they say, in the name of being offended, we perceive that this person has insulted us. We have a right to take justice in our own hands or whatever, or censor them. Yeah. And, 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 and this is where we contradict it ourselves as seemingly somewhat progressive or left-wing or whatever you want to call it, uh, just liberals, but possibly, is this is where we contradict ourselves because, you know, in certain contexts, we're like, you know, no, 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 you have to respect people's feelings and things like that. But then you realize that the people that are actually uh, deploying this sense of you can't offend us to to do all sorts of horrendous things are, are quite diverse and varied and extensive now, and they're practicing quite real power in society under the notion that you're not allowed to offend their beliefs so this is what my problem with kind of kind of prescribing this protection for certain ideas or feelings that people feel compassionate about are you now you have i mean over 200,000 followers i mean a huge huge audience one of the largest audience for a satirist i think um do you feel well, I was going to say, first of all, do you feel any sense of being more careful now that you know how many people are listening to your words? And then I suppose, secondly, do you feel any sense of representation, whatever that might mean to you? No, I think that's an interesting question. Um, the, let me start with the representation, because uh, I think um, it's the the easier one in a sense. It's... Um, uh, I only represent myself at the end of the day, and I'm I'm not part of any you know current or movement or uh, uh, ethnicity or anything like that that I'm trying to portray. And I've had an, an issue all the time when people try you know say to me, "Oh, you're trying to show that uh, you know Arabs can be funny, or trying to show you know Middle Easterners are." Uh, this or civilized or whatever. I mean, it's just, like, I find that absurd. I don't have any any uh, impulse to try to show my culture or my people or anything yeah. in any better light. That's not my responsibility. And anyone that kind of 
thinks low of them, you know, I'm not interested in convincing them. It's a very, very odd thing to think that you are trying to be funny to prove that that you can be funny. <laughs> it's a very odd way to do yes, it. Yes, it's your, a fair point. If you're it's taking on the <laughs> if you're taking but, on the mantle of responsibility, yeah. <laughs> that's a strange one to take on. You know? Yeah, I mean it's 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 a really funny way of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But 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 I think where it becomes again, where it becomes like this question of uh, representation is then you know if you're seen let's say as the person who's doing uh the post-colonial uh satire or the anti-imperial satire or whatever and then if you go and say something uh that goes against that and cuts across that because i kind of contradict myself all the time where people say we, we you know we have a duty to uphold this kind of uh, 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 let's say satirical mission uh, mm. and I'm like no that's totally absurd like if you start taking yourself that seriously as a satirist or a comedian you should like quit very quickly right and you should yeah. be able to say stupid things and this is why I always do this like aside from the political stuff I always do this kind of awful dad jokes right and or kind of just joke about like the normal things in life or whatever some on our team would say that's the highest form of comedy <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair enough not not my daughters they don't say that <laughs> they just roll their eyes and they're like ah daddy not again but uh, but uh it did and and then this kind of takes on you know the the point of uh the responsibility to the audience and things like that and that and and I would like to think that I'm not kind of encumbered by that, uh, but I think I'm lying, right? I'm not going to mm. admit it to you, but I think I'm lying because, uh, uh, and it's partially, it's kind of a very insidious form of self-censorship that you start to practice. And sometimes I'll kick back against it, right? And then um, I'll just kind of get, a big way, and I'm not expecting you to sympathize with me here, if I say, because I, I'm sure you would have been kind of, you know, against me when I've said this thing, but you were decent enough not to say anything about it or join in the pileup. But, and, I, and I'll just take it, right? I'm like, uh -huh. even before I do it, I know there's going to be a massive kickback and like thousands of people are just going to lay into me. Are you talking about something specific? Or, no, or no, it happens, it happens all the time. It hap okay, mm. I'll give you one example. I'll give you one example. And I'm not proud of it, but uh, <laughs> but I give you one example. So so um, there was one time I think it's the Euro Cup or something. I was watching a football game in a in a pub, and then the football game finished. There's lots of people in England playing, and then they lost. And um, then I go outside. It was stifling inside. I find a, a table with four chairs on it, and uh, take one of the chairs, and I'm waiting for my friends uh, to come and join me. And then uh, these three Israeli guys come in, don't ask me if the table is free or anything, and just sit there. And they take the three other seats and they start kind of uh, talking amongst each other. And <laughs> the I'm joke like, writes itself, really. Right. So I wrote the joke, right? I wrote the joke. I put it on Twitter. And uh, automatically, you know, you start to get... I mean, I, I have to admit, some people found it funny and appreciate, you know, the context in what it was said. And others were just like, you know, it went up to like, why are you being anti-Semitic? Why are you being... I, but the point is, to me, it wasn't even a political statement at the time. I was like, because exactly that thing you just said is the joke writes itself and you, how you put it, how you phrase it. And I'm going to tweet it. Of course, I'm going to tweet it. And I know they're going to be kicked back, but I'm going to tweet it. 
And sometimes it would be like, a, you know, something that's poorly thought or whatever. But I think, look, I live with it and people will criticize me. I won't delete it. I'll keep it there. And, um, you know, I, it, it, it'll be what it will be. And that's part of how the whole thing uh, has to work. And um, I, I think the more you kind of do of that and the more you kind of don't accept the sense of responsibility. And uh, I, I think the better it is for everyone and especially for creative uh, people. Because where we end up with social media in particular is... Um, I, I love this example when you read about Najib Mahfouz, uh, you know, the uh, Egyptian uh, novelist, uh, the late Egyptian novelist and Nobel laureate, uh, is um, a lot of his aura and the way he managed to write and understand Egyptian society and is he always was kind of at a, a remote from society itself. He allowed himself a measure of distance, right? And as a result, he became a great observer. Let me stress very quickly that I'm not comparing myself to Najib Mahfouz in any way, shape, <laughs> or form. But he was outside of that kind of... He, he allowed himself to be this observer. He would give very few interviews. He would, and, 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 and as a result, you know, he had that distance to write and think and experiment. And he produced, you know, he's absolutely one of my favorite writers of all time, beautiful literature and beautiful novels, okay? The problem that we have today is as a writer, you kind of just immediately... Uh, on a daily basis, being subjected to the intrusions and opinions of millions of people, it's going to affect you. So we've ended up in a completely different situation. And if you don't have that inner resilience, that's going to affect the quality of your work, the quality of your thinking. And, you know, that is not a healthy position to be in. And uh, that is my, my kind of feeling about that whole responsibility notion and how this public dialogue needs to be conducted. You, you talk about Nagi Mahu sort of removing himself from society to be an observer, but that isn't really what you are doing because your satire relies on public approval or disapproval, but it, re it relies on people retweeting it, finding the joke within it, saying it's funny. It, it relies on the applause that, that satirists and comedians need. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So this is then my point about you have the conclusion that I kind of didn't make very well is then uh, as a result of that, because you're in that context, uh, you know, you don't have the benefit of that distance. You can't then add this additional layer of what's so-called politeness or responsibility or sense of deference around things. You just have to, you know, take the risks and allow people to kind of beat you down occasionally, you know, and just go through it. You'll come out of it. Nothing will happen to you. And you, you'll, 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 you'll be more, I'm not necessarily talking about myself, you know, but I can't, I can't call what I, what I, what I do art. But if, if you were an, a creative person and you're doing that and allowed yourself to go through it and, and, and kind of stand firm in the face of all this kind of critique and things like that, it'll be so much better for, for your art, right? This is my point. Because invariably here, the answer would be either cut off yourself completely from this social media, which is not an option for someone like me, in order to kind of uh, uh, create this uh, autonomy for you to produce your work, or, you know, you just, you just want to throw your opinions out there, you're going to have to, you know, roll with it, but uh, learn how to kind of, that you have to break boundaries, you have to transgress, people are going to call you on it, people are going to be like, you know, awfully critical of you, but you just kind of have to learn how to deal with it, really. I don't see any other way around it. Mm. Uh, not, certainly not what people suggest, which is kind of more policing of social 
uh, of social media outside of obviously like I'm not clearly when people make rape threats and and things like that that obviously you know uh, I know how it would affect uh, women and and all all these kind of things that obviously that that needs to be that needs to be dealt with but what I'm saying if just someone is saying you know you know you you gave an opinion that's a really stupid opinion that is not a ground for police, or even if they start calling you names or whatever, that is not grounds just to police the whole medium so to protect our fragile, you know, little mm. egos. If you don't want to you, put yourself... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, so you were saying earlier that um, you're, sometimes people say, you know, you have to have a, a representation. It's time to make a joke about the subject, prove that you are willing to make a joke about the subject, that kind of thing. I'm sure people have asked that of you. And really what you're you're explaining is that you need to have the the you you need your your representation and your willingness to make the joke has to be about whether the joke is a good joke that's the only internal metric and if you don't have a good joke about it you just leave the topic alone yeah i mean i think that's a fair way of uh putting it you've put it much better than me i should have been interviewing you faisal <laughs> you put it much better than me but really that is that is the measure you know mm. and uh, uh um and i think it's it's if that's all you do that is the uh that is the measure of it that's how it should be judged and people should be malleable enough to understand that in order to make good comedy you know make people laugh you know, you have you 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 have to to kind of transgress some boundaries. It all comes down to how well you 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 can do it. Mm, yeah. Well, we've <laughs> we've spoken for forty five minutes, almost almost the entirety of the podcast, and I haven't asked you my first question yet. So we have to. Go, <laughs> it's really true. I haven't. It's right in front of me, and I haven't asked yet. So let's go all the way back to the beginning, because what I wanted to do was I wanted to give people a flavor uh, of the kind of things you are talking about. Uh, some of the tweets. So here are some of the tweets that you have written in the past. Uh, and then I think what I'm trying to highlight from it, he says, trying to dissect the joke before the joke is made. But what I'm trying to highlight is that there are there's a political understanding that is required in order to make the joke. It's not just a one-line joke like the jokes Jimmy Carr make, which are kind of internally coherent and you don't need any outside context. You need certain context to be able to, to get what the joke is. So let me read a few. Uh, this was... Uh, I love how political analysts talk about the Arabs as a unit, like all 400 million of us sit around the village square and decide things. That was one. Um, so three Jordanians walk into a bar. The king removes the prime minister and dissolves the parliament. Well, that's how all stories finish in Jordan, which I thought was that one in particular. I, I mean, I'll talk about that, but I just I have to read you this one, which isn't political, but, but I... It's one of my favorite jokes that you have made. Uh, and it was part of a series that you did about trying to do one-liners about uh, musicians, famous musicians in the Arab world. So this one was, of course, about Umm Kulthum. And it grows. So Umm Kulthum walks into a bar, walks into a bar, walks into a bar, walks into a bar. <laughs> I love that one. I love, it's brilliant. It's one of the yeah. best jokes. I, um, I always said I wanted to quit after making that joke because to me it was the perfect joke and I knew I'd never equal it. And I and it truly I never did. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good joke. And it's one of those things, I mean, it stands the test of time. I think you made that quite a few years ago, but it's you know it's timeless because once you know, and this is the point I'm making, that you once you know the context of the joke, then it's funny. If you didn't know Uncle Thum's music. If it was about a musician that perhaps you know we're not familiar with, it wouldn't make any sense. The same yeah. with the Jordan, yeah, the same with yeah. the Jordanian example. 
No, it's true. And, and, and it's funny. It's that context is also like uh, narrower than that because it's not everyone who knows Um Kalsum is going to necessarily relate to that joke because they might know Um Kalsum and not be familiar with the or find the format of the bar jokes funny, right? Mm. And and in Jordan, you need to know a bit more about the political system and stuff. So it tends to be like an intersection between a kind of a Western and a Middle Eastern audience. It's like a very niche audience, right? I probably, mm. they all follow me on Twitter and and that's probably them. I'm, I'm probably annoyed a lot of them over the years, but yeah, and they decided to unfollow me. But yeah, quite a quite a lot of this Venn diagram of the people that would be the audience for this thing is is very narrow. But but um, yes, it requires it requires uh, uh, a measure of understanding, even a certain political position in a way to a certain extent. Um, and, it's it's kind of, I, I think of it it's 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 the right kind of uh you know in this super globalized world of ours and when you should all exist in between cultures, it's kind of this you know natural ecosystem that I wanted to operate within. Mm. But there's something also certainly with the Jordan joke and of course with the political analysis joke, there's a seriousness to the joke. I mean, you're lampooning something that is recognizable, otherwise, if the audience doesn't have the context, they don't get it. But it's also recognizably absurd. I mean, for example, the Jordanian joke would apply to lots of countries. I mean, you could, you know, you could make that joke about Russia and people would get it, even if they didn't know the specific context of the politics of Russia. They'd go, oh, I see. I get it. The president removes the prime minister. Oh, I see. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But what I find interesting on that is, you know, these formats uh, existed for a long time, right? And uh, and people would play with them. For example, during the Cold War, they always have to the the joke about the American and the Russian, and you know, the American would say one thing and the Russian would say one thing, mm. and how it worked, right? So these formats uh, existed, but they had kind of a certain ascribed who's going to be the hero in the end, who's going to be the pun, the butt, the butt of the joke. Right. Yeah. Part of what I've been trying to do is turn around who these jokes apply uh, to and how they work, mm. and and that's kind of part of. It sounds very intellectual, but when it actually works, it's actually quite funny. But for example, the other day I was I was I was kind of thinking of this old joke. I haven't decided how I'm going to do it. I was thinking of this joke where it says, "You know what the difference between heaven and hell is? Where it's basically in heaven." Uh, the French are the cooks, the engineers. Oh yeah, are the that's Germans. a very famous joke. Yeah, yeah, you know, right? Yeah, and then in hell, right? Yeah, it's where uh, the English are the cooks, and and then I was like, if you're updating this joke, right? The English are the cooks. Well, I want to. I mean, I'll read it. I I just looked it up because I want to read it because I I know this from you know podcasts I listen to where somebody starts telling a story or starts telling a joke and you go, oh, what's the end of it? So I'll just read it for the audience. Um, and this is I don't know what, where it comes from. It's a kind of I don't. Know, you see it on T-shirts. You see it on posters. It's just something. Somebody. I don't know if you know the origin the origin of it. No, I mean, it's lost no. in the mists of time. <laughs> in the mists of time, yeah. It's probably Churchill. So it goes like this. Um, heaven is where the police are British, the cooks are French, the mechanics are German, the lovers are Italian, and it's all organized by the Swiss. Hell is where the chefs are British, the mechanics are French, the lovers are Swiss, the police are German, and it's all organized by the Italians. And that's, a, I mean, it's a funny joke because every person, I think, every group in there gets a little bit of a something positive and something negative. Yeah, you know, I you, think it's perfect. 
Mm. I, for exactly for that balance. But, but then, so I thought the way to do it, right? If you want to say something about Britain today and express your frustration with everything, is basically you start off by saying you describe what heaven is like, right? And hell, you start by saying the cooks are British. So are the policemen, so are the engineers. The English just do everything. That's the definition of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it seemed to me like, you know, just general dysfunction over the last six years is where they don't seem to be able to know how to do anything and just everything is kind of escalating <laughs> throughout. Uh, I mean, I for want... God's sake, what were they doing arresting people with signs that said, not my king? I know this is not the forum. Sorry, Faisal. No, no, I, I wanted to keep going with the, the heaven because I actually, many years ago, um, I actually wrote a version for the Arab countries um, of that because I thought it was very funny. But it, it wasn't very funny because perhaps I'm not very funny. But also there was a, a sort of more serious reason the joke didn't work. And it's related to something I wanted to ask you about the, the context. The reason that one didn't work is that I think in order for this joke to work, and we are interrogating it rather a lot for something which is on a t-shirt, yeah. but um, the, the reason it works is that the Brits understand about themselves that the police service is generally good, uh, with yeah. apologies to what is going on currently in, in London, um, and that the chefs are not the greatest. And the Italians understand that you know, their food and perhaps their lovers are good, but their organization isn't. But when it came to try to write something about the Arabs, I don't think people sufficiently knew enough things about different Arab countries. I mean, you have links to multiple Arab countries. I've lived in a whole bunch of them. You know, if people don't know enough of what makes the Egyptians funny or what makes the Lebanese disorganized, then they won't really get the joke. Yeah, I, I think a couple of things with that. It's it's interesting because I tried to work with that for a very long time and it had its limitation. I'll tell you what it is. It's not that people don't know necessarily, but they wouldn't give a certain uh, characteristics necessarily, let's say, to a, a Syrian versus an Egyptian. Mm. Uh, you might, you, you, you're not going to get this kind of overly prescribed division of labor within that. But secondly, for Arabs or Middle Easterns, every one of them, for the good things, they think they're the best at everything, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and and in terms of like, if they're talking about how bad things are for them, everybody thinks everything is the worst for them, right? So nobody's going to win either a boasting contest between various Arabs or a, a kind of how bad things are for them because everyone's going to go like, no, our rulers are the worst. No, our economy is the worst. No, So you, you never get to that neat division of labor. And, um, you know, you're going to have to reinvent mm. that joke. But you've given me a kind of a, a, a mission now to... <laughs> well, I'd to, like to, to see you... To, to yeah. attempt that joke. <laughs> I'd like to see you do that joke. Because, I mean, yeah. I think it is... It, it was related to a point I wanted to ask you about the... Whether you think that some of the jokes that you make can only be made by... It's the, only be made by you. It's this kind of positionality thing that you... Uh, you, you identify as an Arab and you are able to make these jokes. I think you have some link to Lebanon. You're able to make jokes about Lebanon in the way that perhaps you wouldn't be able to, for example, I guess, Morocco. I don't know if you have a link there. Things like that. Yeah, no. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to let the cat. I'm going to give you a massive kind of uh, scoop. Now, right, right. I don't actually identify specifically as as anything that strongly. Right. I just do mm. it for the jokes. And it's there, there's a whole kind of you know strand in Seinfeld about that, like someone converts to 
Judaism just so he can have the freedom to tell Jew- Jewish jokes, right? Right. So, so, so I come from a very malleable uh, uh, and diverse kind of cultural uh, background, and uh, I, I don't overtly, you know, I, I'll identify enough as an Arab, you know, enough to be able to capable and make these jokes. But uh, I'm also kind of, you know, I have uh, Aramean heritage and Syriac heritage and. Uh, all sorts of things that are combined. So, so I don't think you can draw these lines very neatly um, in in our region, in our part of the world. And I and I think, but I'm sufficiently embedded in mm-hmm. in a lot of these things to be able, uh, you know, to make these uh, uh, jokes. But that's but also, I wasn't just one thing, because I I wasn't. I'm not saying that you can't make these jokes because of who you are. I'm saying, do you think that the public would accept those jokes? So you talked, for example, about Aramean heritage, which is a you know a minority within the Arab world that many people wouldn't wouldn't know a great deal about. If you were to make a joke about that heritage, uh, you know, to Aramanians walking to a bar. I think some people, if they don't know that you have that heritage, would say, oh, you're criticizing this minority. You're making jokes about this minority like that. Yes, it's absolutely spot on. And I kind of was leading to this. So it's much more recognizable. <laughs> I stole you the understand what I'm trying Sorry. to say? No, no, it's brilliant because you put it better than I would have. Because I started off doing Aramean jokes and nobody got them. And I said, look, <laughs> hang on a minute. What if I pretend that I'm an Arab? And I've got like a 400 million potential pool of people who's going <laughs> to get that joke. Right. So, so, you know, it's it's great. And this is why it's the same now when people say, why do you keep, why do you give live in Britain if you criticize the British all the time. I was like, no, no, but I'm British. I'm being, you know, I'm being, we're famous. We're ma- famous for our, you know, self-deprecation. And, mm. and right? And, you said and, that somewhere else, that actually one of the things that attracts you to British culture is the fact that you can make these jokes and people understand that you are not being rude about them. You're just, it's a self-deprecating culture. Yeah, it's it's absolutely, I love that about them. And uh, uh, uh I mean, it's not everyone to the same extent and not particularly this week, maybe, but in general, uh, they do have that. Because I used to always say this thing, like uh, British really get like the self-deprecating humor, right? And especially when you're kind of making fun of your physical appearance or someone. And and here, if you're doing it in Britain and people are, yeah, you get it. They don't even laugh, right? Because they don't want to give you the satisfaction. But like, <laughs> but like, but like in, in Lebanon, for example, the Arab world in general, and you're like, uh, you know, Oh yeah, because I look so fat or I look so ugly, and people get like, let's say you're going like, oh, it's because I'm so ugly, and people will look at you very philosophically and say, yes, but looks are not everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So you won't get away with it. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, you yeah. won't get away with it. Yeah. Which is what makes it really challenging. Like a lot of the time, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the funniest thing that's that's has ever uh, happened to me in the context. I I. Um, there's a Lebanese television presenter who does this kind of nighttime talk shows. It's called Zaven, and he draws a big audience. and And he invited me once in his show in in Lebanon, and they had like a live audience, um, mm. quite hundreds of people in there, right? And first of all, I should have told, you know, figured out from the introduction that um, he started telling some of my jokes, but it's done in like spoken Lebanese, obviously. And then he had to translate the jokes, and then he had to explain to the audience why the jokes are funny. And they still didn't get it. 
<laughs> so I was there for like 20 minutes, right? Trying my <laughs> best. Awful. Sitting and, there listening to your and, own jokes. Yes. And then I kind of tried to, maybe if I started like, you know, speaking and trying to, and, and they absolute dead silence. They're looking at me like, I, you know, it's like, this is the, they're all, look, I'm looking at them. They're all thinking this is the least funniest person in the world. Why are they even having him on, on, on TV? So it was brutal. I tell mm. you, it was brutal. And there's video footage of it. It's available online and things. I, I won't share the link, but it kind of speaks of this, it's something you very politely kind of alluded to, but you didn't delve into, which I, I'm in a very privileged position of having a kind of a certain op audience that appreciates these things. But, uh, you know, the, the kind of the attempts I humor that I make and but they are not necessarily universal. And what makes it very painful is they're not accessible, you know, to your mm. own people sometimes, which is which is quite painful. Yeah, I mean, I, again, even within the Arab world, I think different people would respond um, differently. I mean, you're generalizing a lot, but I, mean, I do think sometimes one of the things I like about um, spending time in Egypt is that Egyptians are very willing to take the joke, like whatever it is, they're willing to see the humor in it, I think. I mean, I, I always say this. I love Egyptians, massive generalization. They're the funniest people in the world. You know, they could just tell you like, please pass me the salt and they can say it in a funny way. Meanwhile, I find us, the Lebanese, very cringe, you know, uh, even when I watch myself, like trying to make, do a, a, you know, say something in in mm. Lebanese, and and it's I don't find myself funny at all. So it's almost like they're naturally imbued by this kind of uh, we we call it khifet uh, dam in in Arabic, you know, the 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 just kind of a sense of humor, general sense of humor. And then uh, there are others like Iraqis are really really good at very dark, bleak very humor, dark humor and, yeah, kind of, and and being able to tell it in a in yeah. a in a kind of very dry way right very, i think you can say that, that a generalization about iraq is but i think that's right yeah no i i think it's totally yeah, uh, yeah. totally right but you know as you travel and i kind of trying to cover as much of the arab world and the middle east as possible you know uh you realize people have different attitudes different ways of dealing these things what makes it great is there is a shared language and a shared enough pool of culture to start to kind of understand these differences mm. but even the people that you know people generally tend to think of you know the uh, gulf people for example as being over serious which is really not true, not they, true you at know, all. You not know at it's all. really really not, not true yeah. uh, and and so maybe there's in the next chapter of my life rather than demystifying uh, uh uh you know arabs to 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 the west you just gotta like demystify different arabs to each other well it's a it's a version of the you know the british do this the italians do that the germans do this i mean the the, the idea that the germans are humorless is not true at all germans tell some excellent jokes actually one of the nice things i think about the explosion in uh, of netflix is that you start to see a lot of german stand-up comedians making their way to um, to to Netflix, and so it allows you access to the comedy of these uh, uh, of these cultures in a way yes. that I think perhaps previously you, you didn't have. No, um, no, absolutely. Particularly the Germans. I mean, you look back at their cabaret tradition. You know, it, it, it. As I, I can't remember who said it is German satirists uh, single-handedly put an end to Nazism. But yeah, it's a very dark joke. But yeah, it's, it's a dark joke that the British wouldn't appreciate. I guess neither the Russians either. So. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the medium because it's something I always wanted to ask you about. That your your satire seems very well suited to Twitter. Like it's it's pithy, it's shareable, it's the kind of thing that people from a similar community can understand. 
I wondered how, I know you've experimented with cartoons before, but how much do you think the median influences the satire? Oh, it's it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And it suited me very well because I'm extremely lazy. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's you know, it's like there's, if you look at my cartoons or videos or all of these things, there is absolutely zero effort that goes into any kind of pretending to do things professionally or following through. And actually, my cartoons were very popular uh, because, it, but they were such a minimal uh, style of drawing uh, that they were kind of very quick to draw and things like that. So I think what happened is in a different era, I, I wouldn't have been able to find an audience because it would have like required someone to actually put some effort into these things. As it happened, the moment when I was ready to start kind of, you know, doing comedy and humor and things that we have the social media with this influence mm-hmm. on, you know, uh, shorter things, bite side things, you know, five second videos and things like that. So it's kind of like, it's perfect because, you know, if I lived in the 19th century, uh, I'd be, you know, I'd been, I wouldn't be have doing this podcast with you for starters, but it, it, because, you know, previously, you know, you needed to have kind of a, 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 a level of, you know, dedication and perseverance and, and things like that. But, mm. and, and, and I used to try to do these, these things with kind of very carefully and put a lot of effort into them. And I realized that's not really appreciated. It's mm. like the, the, the craft that goes into things. That's not what people want out of it. You want to hit the topic that's now everybody's talking about and you want to hit it in the most expedient way uh, possible. And that's where, you know, it starts off with when the original tweets, they were 140 characters. So it was an absolutely brutal to get anything funny in that. But I still try to stick to that limit now, even though we have longer. Because I think, you know, once you hit that perfect one-liner, that's that's takes so much work to actually get it to that. So I'm, I'm contradicting myself now. But it's 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 you know it's my thing out of both kind of this lack of perseverance, but also it kind of resonates with this stuff. However, yeah, I, I have, I, sorry, go ahead. No, no, well, I was just gonna say I actually think it's it is very much of the comedy is very much of the moment. I think if you try to put too much thought into it. I mean, of course, you have to craft it in a certain way, but I think people appreciate um, when it is, you know, when when, when it's off the cuff. And I think certainly when it comes to jokes, the kind of jokes that you make, people want it to hit in a particular way and they just want to hear it. Yeah, it's true. And, and then, but also there's something else about it. And it's great when they invented the thread because you mm-hmm. can actually see how my brain is working if you go from one tweet to the other, as you know. Every two hours, I think of something new. So, so let's say when uh, the news came out about Brexit, the result came out, and I was like, you know, the country is being divided. I started joking along those lines, and then pretty soon I drew the map, right? Yeah, and then it's yeah. in the same thread, and then I made like a Berlin Wall right down Trafalgar Square, separating the two, you know, the Remainers from the Brexiteers and all of that. So I think that's a great thing because it's like a living thing, right? It's like you're yeah. doing real-time stand-up comedy in the sense that you're writing it and performing it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as people comment on it, you get like a a, a, a better idea, right? You get inspired yeah. by something to say. It's a brilliant medium. And, but, the and joke has- is, but the joke is 80... And I completely understand what you're saying, but the joke is 80, 90% done in its first draft. So there was a one of the very few uh, viral jokes that I've had was when 
just before um, Boris Johnson was toppled, the or just after rather, the chancellor at the time, Nadim Zahawi, who is, has Iraqi heritage, he was the person that finally pushed him out. And I put out a tweet saying, uh, how nice a British leader has been toppled by an Iraqi. Ah. <laughs> and of course, I, I, how did I not see that? That well, is brilliant. Actually, I'll, I'll tell you something. Thank you. But I, 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 as that joke started to go viral, because it went out in the morning and, you know, started to get retweeted a lot. There was a part of me that thought, I need to check Carl hasn't done this joke. Because <laughs> for That's sure, the- I was terrified yeah. of going to your Twitter and checking and like an hour earlier, you'd put it out and I was like, oh man. But no, um, but the reason that that I think I was saying about 90% of the joke, obviously once that started to go viral, people would then respond and say, well, um, technically he has Kurdish heritage. It's not actually Iraqi and all of this kind of stuff. And it's not, Like the joke is 90% done the first time it is put out. When you start to tweak it too much, you lose some of the spontaneity. Yes, but in certain exceptions. So you know the Um Uncle Thum joke that you really like, right? Mm. That didn't start with Um Uncle Thum. It started with Fairuz or someone else, right? And Mm. then people started replying. Someone says, now do Um Uncle Thum. And then Mm. I gave it the first shot. It was like, nah. And then I went away and thought about it, right? And and when it hit me, I can't like describe to you. It was like something visceral. It was like obviously this is the joke. That's the joke, right? Yeah. You know. Yeah. And yeah, when yeah, it came, yeah. I was like, that's it. It's it's the format. It's everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's very interesting how these things. I agree with you. Sometimes it's kind of your like very first reaction. Yeah. But sometimes like you just gotta sit there and work at it and work at it and work at it and genuinely it looks like it's the most absurd thing in the world but sometimes I'll knock it around I and mean, some of these things I've had the idea like you know I, I managed to finally kind of come out with the right articulation a year later I, yeah no I'm I'm sorry I was wrong I mean, I've taken some of your genius from you by assuming that it is all spontaneous <laughs> no that's true because actually a lot of the genius of, of stand-up comedians is their ability to hone a joke again and again. I think Chris Rock said this, that sometimes you need to hone it and you need to find the exact form of words. And I think that is right. That, of course, is what comedians do. So, yeah, no, you're right. You have to find it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess uh, it's, it's the medium allows you to do all sorts of things. And this is what I love about it. And this is what I think brilliant about it. But in a way, what you said, you know, um, uh, I, when you started telling the joke and you, you know, you made, you made the joke and you said about Nadim Zahawi, I, yeah. I, I found it really funny. I started laughing and I swear to God, immediately I thought, I bet someone has uh, then, uh, you can't say that because Nadim Zahawi is Kurdish now exactly. and he shouldn't be yeah. called Kurdish, right? But this exactly. is exactly the kind of thing that I was telling you about. I <laughs> yeah. wasn't talking about the level of censorship where someone is talking about power dynamics and whatever, and you try. This is the kind of like low level, just kind of, it's like, can we swear on this, by the way? Go ahead. Okay. It's just like, for fuck's sake, let it go. It's a joke, right? Everybody understands. Yeah. You're not trying to kind of take away the, you know, the, 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 the Kurdish identity or anything. Everybody would understand the context of that. But mm. this is what gets me. This low-level kind of actually, the well actually, you know, that is sort of, is so tedious and banal. And the more space we give it, it's just, I'm, 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 I'm being not funny again. I'm going to leave it. But honestly, <laughs> 
aren't, aren't you worried? I mean, as someone, you know, you are genuinely funny and I aspire to be funny. But in that context, don't you think you are worried about this defense that it's just a joke? I mean, in that context, I wasn't seeking to say anything about Nadim Zahawi. The joke, in fact, I think Nadim Zahawi has identified as, a, as an Iraqi. But to some degree, it doesn't matter. The joke doesn't work as if you identify him as a Kurd, because the British haven't done that. They didn't. Saddam Hussein was a was an Iraqi. It doesn't work otherwise. So yeah, exactly. But, but at but, the same time, yeah, I, I wonder if you think this defense of oh come on, it's just a joke. Don't you get nervous about that? Because that could be leveled. That could be used by people who who want to make nasty jokes. Perhaps who do want to erase the Kurdish identity. Yeah, yeah, of course. The defense, no, but the defense kind of presents itself, right? If it's quite obviously a joke in which you know nobody in that you still have to make a judgment call, right? Just right. kind of if you go about and make the most racist, awful joke in the world and say it's just a joke, well, obviously that's not an excuse. I'm still gonna lay into you and call you like a racist, yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, but uh what I'm saying is that the the it's a joke defense is made by the joke, not by you, right? Anyone can tell from that joke is your intention is not to undermine Kurdish identity or delegitimize uh, the federal status of the Kurdish part of uh, Iraq within Iraqi federalism yeah. or, you know, undermine the legacy of uh, Salah Din or any of those things. <laughs> All these jokes, frankly, we would have had to wait for 280 characters to do them. Before we're talking about. <laughs> exactly, which is why 140 was brilliant. But <laughs> it's clear from the joke that your intent is none of these things. So, you know, mm. that it's a joke defense is built into the joke itself. You can tell from the joke that's what's been... And it's like, come on, cut us some slack, you know? Mm. And uh, and I always, like, I talk about this because it, it's not even about that kind of thing, right? Like if you make a joke in which you put two different characters from two different historical eras, people, we, we, which are necessary to make the joke funny, right? Okay. Then people will very quickly be, there'll be people offended because they're like, these people lived in two different eras, how can you put them in the same joke? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Technically, they wouldn't have meant, uh, they wouldn't have met. And you go, well, that's why it's a joke rather than you know, <laughs> a historical drama on the BBC. <laughs> yeah, I, but I wonder also if it's to do with people getting to know you in some way. Because, I mean, in your case, you have, what, 12 years, you said, being on Twitter. People get to know you over that period of time. And they get to trust you to some degree. I mean, I, you know, I see this with stand-up comedians. You, of course, some of the, the things that stand-up comedians say can be shocking. Ricky Gervais, um, Jimmy Carr, Dave Chappelle. But to some degree, when you get to know them, you go with them on the journey of the joke. And I think that's probably what, what happens on, on Twitter, that people come with you to some degree because they say, look, we know what Carl Schauer is all about. We know yeah. that he's not making this joke because he dislikes any of these groups. Okay, let's go with him and see where we get to with it. Yeah, that's that's true. And I have to give credit to a lot of people that have cut me a lot of slack over the years because uh, they would have understood where I'm uh, coming from. And I think that's another thing. It's like, you know, the joke doesn't stand on its own. I think that's a great observation. It's It's basically a product of a whole kind of relationship that you build with people who are you know, willing to kind of be generous enough 
to entertain these things and follow it closely enough to understand that. Yeah. And uh, that's, again, another, I think, brilliant thing. I mean, everybody hates social media. I love social media. So everything I saw, I say in terms of kind of, you know, uh, uh, I, how it's against its regulation and things like that is out of my love for this medium because it's fantastic. It's democratizing. It's liberating. It gives people like me who would have never been anywhere near any audience before an audience. And it's fantastic. I love it. And I love the people that I've kind of nurtured along the way and also the people that I personally follow and, and, and find their output fantastic. I think this is really great stuff and it's kind of you know it leads to a lot of experimentation and new forms of humor and things like that it's it's really nice carl sharrow thank you very much thank you this has been the lead the new lines magazine podcast you can find carl on twitter at carl remarks his book and then god created the middle east and said let there be breaking news can be bought at all good bookshops this week's episode was produced by joshua martin and hosted by me faisal yafa For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.